Today's scripture reading is from Luke 4, 14 to 22. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been, taught, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. (laughs) The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? This is the word of the Lord. week in three one it goes all the way to 950 but this is called uh, Jesus's Galilean ministry now he probably did a little bit of uh, reconnaissance in the Judean Jerusalem area prior to this in John's gospel we see some of that but where he wants to begin his ministry in earnest particularly Luke wants us to see is in the region that you wouldn't expect him to start his ministry Why? Because Luke wants us to know, for all of us outsiders, all of us non-Jews, all of us non-insiders, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Those you wouldn't expect him to come for, those who think I shouldn't expect to have any shot to be in relationship with God. Jesus wants to know, wants us to know, no, you're the very ones for whom I came. Luke writes his gospel to a A Gentile named Theophilus means lover of God, and his gospel is uh, very carefully researched and thoughtfully ordered. And he says, so that you might know with certainty or know in your bones the things you've been taught. He wants to reassure believers. I know sometimes you blow it and you wonder how in the world to have any business being with God, and I've got some religious, you know, Folks who look down their nose at me, I'm not sure I'm on the inside. He says, no, you are. Be reassured. All the things you've been taught because you're the very one for whom Jesus came to seek and to save you. But it's also written as a surprise to those who are still on the outside, who those who have never considered Jesus or considered him kind of a caricature of him and said, I no thanks. And he wants to surprise those of us who say, eh, nah, or I've seen it in my family. I've seen it when I grew up in church and the hypocrisy is just too much. I can't handle it. And Luke wants to bust up whatever categories those are and say, look again at Jesus. 
not his messed up followers, though we are supposed to represent, but to look again at him. Fix your eyes on him. Now, our passage today that Jenny just read the first portion of, it's going to take us to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Yes, I know he was born in Bethlehem, but only because Joseph had to go back because a census was being taken as God sovereignly moved him so that just like the scriptures promise in Micah 5, he would be born in Bethlehem, but also Matthew alludes to, but he would be called a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth, his hometown, and he's going to go back there. And there's a buzz about him already. He'd already been doing some ministry. Uh, He'd already been doing some miracles. And the word was spreading, and hometown boy done good coming home. And there's an excitement and anticipation. There's a wonder. There's a bewilderment, if you will. And we're going to go to that synagogue that she just read about, where he preaches one of his first sermons. Let's just say this was not a ho-hum day at church. This wasn't a, um, now let's sing the first, second, and fourth stanzas, but not the third, and let's hurry up and get through it so we can get to Luby's before the Methodist. It was not that. All right? Or the Presbyterians or the Baptists if you're Methodists. It's just a joke. Because we hungry. Um, Anyway, sorry. But it was not a ho-hum day. As the Son of Man starts his ministry in earnest in the region of Galilee... Jesus delivers a message that's going to stir up an early reception of him that then quickly triggers hostile rejection. So hostile, in fact, they try to throw Jesus off of a cliff. I didn't make Jenny read that part. We'll get to that in a moment. Jesus' message, though, if that's what they wanted to do, it must have really touched a nerve. As we walk through this passage, Luke intends for all eyes to be fixed on him, just like they were in that synagogue, and for Jesus' message to touch a nerve within you and me. That way, we'll respond either with worship or with rage, because never in the scriptures do you see an encounter with Jesus where someone walks away indifferent. And sadly, most of us, or I'll say many of us, on any given Sunday, any given small group encounter, whatever, how much is it ho-hum? Because when we encounter Jesus as he is, when our eyes fix on him and our ears are in tune to him, we cannot walk away in indifference. And so that's my prayer is that God would open my eyes, your eyes, and our ears. The question you and I are confronted with today as we go through the passage is this. How do you and I respond when Jesus just doesn't behave the way you want him to? How do you and I respond when Jesus just doesn't behave or he doesn't say things like we want him to say? He doesn't fit the box that we want him in. Another way to say it is, how do we respond when Jesus touches a nerve because he's acting out here and we need him to be over here working on our agenda. Because make no mistake, that's exactly what happens. And we ain't so much better than those who say, let's throw them off a cliff. We just dress it up a little nicer. So how do we respond? How do you respond when Jesus doesn't behave the way you want him to? 
First of all, looking at verses 14 and 15 again very quickly, Luke gives us a summary picture of this early reception, this acceptance of him. They are glad, again, um, in the whole region. They're, they're seeing and hearing of these things he's doing, these things he's teaching. He doesn't teach like the Pharisees. He's healing people. That's already been going on somewhat. And in 14 and 15, we see this early reception as the Son of Man's ministry starts. Look there again, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee. And in the power of the Spirit, again, Luke is going to emphasize Jesus' humanity. So he's also going to show us, just like Jesus, who's fully human and fully God, though he is, he still yields to the Spirit's power in his life to take um, full you know, stewardship of the, the ministry, the calling that he has as Messiah. He's going to only do it in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues. And he was praised by all. The word praise there is that idea of wonder and worship. And particularly that uh, word is most often assigned to God. So there's some sense they're on tiptoe. There is anticipation. We think God is doing something among us. This may be God's man. We can't put everything together right now. As Eric said, is that song. There's something going on, and we're wondering about you, Jesus. There's a wonder, there's an astonishment, there's a praise, um, and they're giving him this early reception. So many initially accepted and glorified the Spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus ministered by the Spirit, and he was praised by all for his authoritative teaching ministry. Luke particularly is going to be um, interested in us hearing Jesus' teaching. He's going to give us this message, not not in full at all. And then he's going to give us uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. Um, He's going to emphasize Jesus didn't just come as miracle worker, but he did come also to proclaim the kingdom. And as we'll see today, to say... Yes, I am the one that was promised. Now, he's not going to say it that directly, but he's going to say it in a way like you can't go middle of the road. Again, notice where Jesus starts his ministry in earnest. Uh, He returns to Galilee, which is Nazareth was in the Galilean region. This is north of Jerusalem. So temple in Jerusalem down there. But up here, the Sea of Galilee, it's north of it. And you have towns like Capernaum, um, Nazareth, or or some of them up there. And so that's where he is in that region. I want to tell you this. There was a saying during those days said, if you want to be wise or see also you want to be godly, you want to be acceptable to God, but you want to be wise, go to Jerusalem. You want to be rich, go to Galilee. It's almost, not quite, but it's almost probably like, hey, if you want to have a good time, go to Vegas. It's a little bit, it's, it's approaching that. Why? Because fishing was very lucrative in this region. You got a lot of crossroads happening, so you got a lot of soldiers in and out, a lot of seedy people, a lot of folks making cash. And out of that, now they have options. And particularly, the farther away from Jerusalem you're getting, you're also now 
on the fringes of, are we Jewish, not Jewish? There's mixture up there. And so it was, um, you know, would not have been expected. That's really all I'm trying to tell you. Would have not have been expected that Messiah would particularly start, you know, a, his, his start of his ministry going forward in Galilee. Like, that's the wrong place. And Jesus relishes that. He says, no, this is exactly where I was to be. Notice also what Luke chooses to emphasize when he gives this report in these two verses. He gives a quick snapshot of good times, and then he gives much more space and details as we'll go through today of Jesus being rejected by his own hometown. That's not, that's not a mistake. That's Dr. Luke, who's very careful not only to examine the stories, and, but then put it together, and then put it together in an orderly fashion, Theophilus, so you might know for certain the things you've been taught. He did face rejection. Why? He faced rejection because they didn't like that he was going to the outsiders. They didn't like that he didn't start in Jerusalem. He says, be, be surprised, non-religious person. Guess what? Jesus came for you. And so that is where Luke wants us to see primarily, yes, there were some good times, kind of initial short honeymoon, but it's going to intensify oppositionally as we go along. Now, Jesus shows up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, so notice Jesus' um, local, local boy makes good. He comes home to worship. Notice he routinely did this. He's honoring the worship of God. He's honoring gathering with God's people where they gather to hear God's word, to pray and to seek God, to worship him. He is part of that. That was his rhythm. And notice he goes to Nazareth synagogue, again, where he grew up. There was also another um, saying that we know from the Gospel of John when uh, uh, some of the early disciples are saying, hey, Nathaniel, you should come check out Jesus. We, we think he's the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, put that with what I told you earlier. If you want to get rich, go to Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Little stick town, that's what he's saying. Little branch town. Backwater, Nazareth, any, the Messiah is coming from there? No. Know that that's in the general just you know, understanding of people during that day. But the people of Nazareth were proud that, hey, local boy, is he's making some noise for us. You know, maybe our Chamber of Commerce will get a few hits on our website. I don't, I don't know, but they were, they, were, they were looking forward to this one who came from among them. And now that he gets uh, in the synagogue, uh, it's on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read in the book of the, or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. This is from uh, Isaiah 61. People understood, listening to this, that this was a messianic section of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year 
of the Lord. Now, as they're hearing this, again, they're hearing a messianic passage. There's anticipation about who Jesus is. And these are just such gracious words to, to set free, to provide release, to heal. And this, the, the idea of the jubilee, of the favorable year of the Lord. This is, this is a good word. This is encouragement. This is overflowing with grace. Verse 20, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and all uh, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I want to tell you a little bit of synagogue pattern. This would have happened most Sabbath days. Uh, they would have gathered together. There need, I think, to be 10 men in order for this to count. So imagine that, you know, sometimes are you, if you're honest, right? Does this count as worship attendance, right? Does this count as I went to church, right? You had to have 10 men there. I don't, I don't know why. But you would get there and they would read the Shema. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. Okay, so that was what you would read first. Then there would be prayers. Then there would be a reading from the law, which is the first five books of the, the, your Bible, the Torah, the law. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. Now, if, if you swam, have swum, yes, have swum in Romans at all, uh, that should, that, the law and the prophets, that, that's in Romans 3. Hey, this whole idea of where, how does salvation come, and all, it's the law and the prophets, we're pointing to it. Or Jesus, when he says, what's the greatest commandment? He's asked that. He says, you know, love God, love your neighbor. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two, depend on these two, okay? So that's why a good pattern in the synagogue, you read the law and you read the prophets. Who are we as God's covenant people? He is holy. We're therefore to be holy as he is holy. And then we know that we're also not holy, (laughs) We sit, we're, we're, we're trapped in sin. We need a Messiah. So the prophets are calling them back to their covenant relationship and looking forward to the one that God promised, who is Messiah. That's just some background on the synagogue. But I want you to know, that, know this. Jesus, potentially, we don't know this for sure, he could have shown up on the day when the lectionary, the guy who's in charge, had a guy who'd go back and get the scrolls, um, and he'd pull out. And maybe he followed the schedule. Maybe Jesus showed up on the very day that that was the the prophet reading, Isaiah 61. Or it's also possible that he said, I'd like to read from that scroll, and he read it. We don't know for sure, but he reads from Isaiah 61. Um, And he chooses that portion focused on Messiah's ministry of preaching the good news and proclaiming freedom and messianic rest for his people. And then he did something that we don't often do. He sat down. When you sit down in their culture, you are taking the posture of a rabbi. You are taking the posture of one who's going to teach, who's going to expound on the passage. When he handed the scroll back, he had read it, just like Jenny did. Don't worry, I don't have a messianic complex. I'm not going to sit the whole time. I could, but, you know. And then all eyes were fixed on him. In verse 21, they're wondering, what in the world is he going to say? Guy who sits down, 
that we've heard about. He's read this passage. All eyes were fixed on him, verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this day, the one you almost slept in on, young Jew from outskirts of Nazareth, you almost didn't come. Today, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is the scripture talking about? In the scripture, you see me, release, set free. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's meaning me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What does he mean by poor? It's not just spiritually poor, like some of us would like to just jump there. It's, uh, it is that. It is also economically poor, but it's also not just that. Okay, this is not um, a passage full on for liberation theology. It's also not a passage full on not liberation theology. Jesus doesn't want your categories. He's not here to satisfy us and what we want him to be. He says, me, I've been anointed. He anointed me to bring this good news to the poor. And particularly what he's talking about with poor is not just spiritually poor, although he does, not just economically poor, although he does. It could mean anyone, and here's the phrase, um, a, a guy that I studied, I really appreciate what he said. It's anyone with diminished status honor. Now that, we're not, we don't live in an honor-shame culture here. We live in more of a, you know, are we guilty or not guilty culture? They lived in an honor-shame culture. And so there are all kind of strata as to, do I have, you know, country club status? Do I have, am I a ruler? Am I esteemed in this way? What's my gender? What is my pocketbook, my portfolio? There's all these levels and strata of status. And he says, I'm here to announce the really good news the victory message that those things that have oppressed you, categorized you, kept you from where you feel like you are lesser than, I've come to proclaim good news to you if you've been one of those who has diminished status honor. I want you to know this, and we're going to keep moving. That's what he reads from Isaiah 61. He actually leaves part of it out. You could say, well, that's really bad exegesis. You could say, boy, he's really tailoring this message and skipping the hard stuff. No, he's actually doing it very purposely. What does he not include in there? Well, the end of Isaiah 61, 2 is, after the things he's already read, and the day of vengeance of our God. So today is the day of freedom, release, you know, sight to the blind, being set free. And it's the day for vengeance of our God. He says, no, right now, today is the day to announce, release the good news, the invitation that God and his mission to save and deliver a people, redeem a people for himself. He's now rolling it forward. The day of vengeance is coming. Okay, don't miss that. 
that he doesn't read that portion because there will become a day when whether we have bowed the knee confess with our mouths before there will come a day when all will do that but he's saying right now today this is the new era of salvation and find yourself you will find yourself a beneficiary of its fulfillment only if it's rooted in his person only if it's rooted in jesus not a righteousness of the pharisees not keeping your religious nose clean only in him who is the one who can say he has anointed me to proclaim this and what do you do with me well what's the response the initial response is one of wonder and skepticism all were speaking well of him man this guy can preach this guy just i'm i'm fired up or i want to hear more why because there were gracious words which were falling from his lips but there was also skepticism they were saying is this not joseph's son okay now mark 6 if you want to look at it later gives you more detail they they really deliberate this they're like i mean a couple years back i remember he made a table for me in my dining room it's still pretty sturdy like that guy (laughs) right there's they're skeptical they're 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 leaning in to listen and they're kind of there's an excitement but they're not accepting his person they're not accepting the message that he is saying today in your hearing this is fulfilled what does he mean the me in the passage is me and they're like well the me we know made our table the me we know you know it's just Jesus, Joseph's son. So, Jesus is now going to surface what's in their hearts. He said to them, verse 23, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, So, he knows you guys don't really accept me. That's what he's saying. You want to show. You want your interest attended to. And now he's going to give them a history lesson. And now he's going to start meddling. Now he's going to touch a nerve. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophets welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three and three and a half years, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of whom, none of the widows in big, bold letters, Israel. But he was only, Elijah was only sent to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He's referring to 1 Kings 17, 7 through 16. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. What's he saying? Elijah didn't go to any of the Israelites. Why? Because they weren't willing to receive his message and therefore they couldn't become beneficiaries of God's uh, blessing and grace to them through receiving God's message and therefore receiving God's messenger. So he went outside. Next history lesson. And, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the the time of Elisha. So, after Elijah, Elisha, the prophet. 
and none of them, these lepers in Israel, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Elisha, similar, God's prophet, was basically rejected. So the people sealed themselves off from being able to receive the blessing of, you know, being receptive to God's truth and therefore God's messenger. And so the benefit and the blessing was outside Israel to Naaman the Syrian. He's an army commander with leprosy, and Elisha heals him, and no one in Israel. No one we would expect God to heal because they're God's people. No one that they, as God's people, would expect to heal was outside Israel. Maybe they tolerate a little bit, but he for sure needs to come through for us. What is Jesus surfacing? You don't really accept me. You'd like me to do a few things for you. You you like the dog and pony show, but you'd really like me to make your life work. You'd really like to have me on your terms, and I won't be had on your terms. God didn't send me to proclaim liberty to captives who say, or who demand. If you want acceptance, you need to do this. We'll keep coming to the Nazareth synagogue if you'll do this. You'll say this. What's Jesus doing? He's surfacing the need to decide for them and for us, who is he? Is he the fulfiller, as Dr. Bach Uh, One of my mentors at seminary, I can call him that because I know him well enough. He's the, I actually talked to him last week. I'm going to try to sucker him into coming again just to teach one week so you can hear the guy who knows Luke like he, like was his cousin or something. But he says, the question before them was, is Jesus the fulfiller of promise or an imposter with empty words? And Jesus is saying, I know your hearts. And you guys look at me like I'm an imposter with empty words. I'm not really that Messiah, but you sure would like me to do some things for you. And that's what he's surfacing in their hearts. And what was their response? They got it. Verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Again, this wasn't a boring sermon but it probably also wasn't any kind of like, you know, wow you away message. It was just plain, bald truth. And they got it when he said, Elisha and Elijah and Elisha were rejected. And so they went outside. He's foreshadowing, guess what's going to happen? You guys reject. I'm going to go outside. And they got the message because they were filled with rage. All those eyes fixed on him went from this mixture of wonder and skepticism to rejection. And, keep going, filled with rage, they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, I love this. Again, part of this is to go, what is your picture of Jesus? What is mine? Is it the really ugly one, uh, framed brown picture that was in your Sunday school hallway growing up 
of really milquetoast Jesus? Because look at the last verse. They took him to the brow of the hill to throw him off. But passing through their midst, he went his way. I love that. That's kind of a throwaway verse for a lot of us. I don't think Jesus was, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in physique. But what do you see? Led uh, and, and empowered by the Spirit, fully man. The whole mob took him out to the cliff. I, I'm just impressed by him. He says, all right, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to go on my way now. And they could do nothing to stop him. That, to me, would have signaled like, mm, maybe I should have thought about a little bit. Oh, wait, how did I end up here on the brow of the hill? Well, because it's a mob mentality of people who thought life should work for us and therefore we want our agenda pushed. Now we're going to push you off the cliff because you're not the guy we want. We're not going into it today. I think one of the best passages you can soak in, meditate on, and or memorize if you want to build some real muscle, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. And he'll say, he was despised and rejected of men. We, we, we looked at him and he had no appearance that we should esteem him. And then he says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That picture of Jesus, we don't want it. They didn't want it for sure. But we also don't want it. And we may be a little better on the outside of, of picturing our rage. But if we are triggered and um, if, if we are miffed at God, let's put it in the lower spectrum over here for y'all. Miffed at God, a little bit ticked, PO'd would be a, a, a abbreviation. Keep going to rage, keep going to, I'm going to throw him off a cliff. We probably most of the time will have a nice North Dallas Christian expression on our face. And yet simmering within us is not just disappointment, not just bitterness, but hostility toward God because he refuses to act on my terms. I kept my nose clean. I went to church six weeks in a row. I helped walk an old lady across the street. I've been memorizing scripture, yet you don't fix my kid. You don't cause my business to succeed. You don't have my political party in power, or you do, and it's getting flustered and whatever. And Jesus says, I don't, I'm not going to sit in your categories. They were filled with rage. And Jesus escapes. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And John, he'll tell us that um, nobody's going to take his life. He'll lay it down on his own terms, his own initiative. Man, I love Jesus. This whole section is a snapshot summary of Jesus' ministry, and it foreshadows what his ministry will be like and what the response will be to him, how outsiders like Theophilus can know they're included. Jesus starts like he will end. There is, they go from wonder and skepticism to hostility. That increasing hostility will end up in execution on a cross. He has this extraordinary escape uh, from being thrown off the cliff. He's going to escape death's clutches after his death and burial and the resurrection. They came anticipating. Who, 
And then they came wondering, like, man, this is amazing, and his words are gracious, but this is Joseph's. So, like, what do we do with it? And Jesus would give room for that. He goes, man, I get that. I get that you're still trying to figure it out. He was very patient with Peter. Peter's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, all right, well, so you know, the son of man's going to have to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to have to suffer, and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter's like, no way. What does he tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What is he saying? Your picture of me was off. I'm going to be patient with you. Because he tells them again and again and again that same plain message. But it pained them because that's not the category they wanted. Even the disciples are like, can I sit at your right and your left? Which one of us among is the greatest? Hey, Jesus, you want us to like call down thunder or lightning on these people? See, this is how he starts his ministry. And the question would be, particularly you look at, you think about uh, our day and age, is like, is Jesus' ministry a success or not? Siri's trying to answer the question for me. Is Jesus' ministry a success or not? Well, did he have large crowds? Well, for a while, but boy, they thinned out. Is ministry success? Is, Is our church, is any church, is any ministry... Are you getting, are you moving towards success when you got large crowds? Maybe, maybe not. Let me say this to you, because some of you are proud that our church is a little bit smaller. Our, our vision as a church is not to be small nor big. It's to be healthy and vibrant and, and encouraging one another out to be ambassadors to represent him. And most of that time, it will be most beautiful when it has nothing to do with any program with people showing up here, this building or not. We hope that God uses this building. We hope that this place is busting at the seams at times because it's healthy and it's multiplying. And so if you're like, man, the small church, that's when they're really real. Actually, sometimes small churches can be ingrown toenails. They can be filled with a lot of toxins and proud people. Also, large churches, boy, they could be successful and faithful. We don't know. Just because you get a lot more rear ends and seats, I love that Francis Chan back in the day, he goes, it started to haunt him that, man, my church would be way bigger than Jesus's. Why? Well, because Jesus would say things that make people want to throw him off a cliff. Jesus would say things and they start disappearing and he turns to Peter's like, well, are you guys going to leave? He's like, no, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. A ministry, a church is not successful by its accoutrements. It's successful, really, I would just say, when we're faithful to seeking and worshiping and lifting up the name and the person of Jesus as he is, not as someone to consume, not as someone who's going to meet every need and desire, not that your whole life is going to be all rosy and great, but when we are faithful to lift up the person in the name of Jesus, And when that stirs in us a hunger and a thirst to know him, to know his word, and to make him known to others. Because in any church, no matter the size, we can can chase our tails and play lots of games and be busy. And he would just say, what are you doing? He'd say, what do you do with me? So come to that. Yancey, a few years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. 
And the encouragement in that is look at him again. Look at him afresh. See him again, maybe as if for the first time. Jesus is more than you think, and sometimes not what you think. He starts his ministry in a place you wouldn't expect him to. He spends his time with someone you say, that's not going to help us really build a blowing and going deal. Yancey, in that book, at least I got this out of it. I don't know if he said this directly. In some ways, I ought to be writing a new volume in my own book, or if you will, my own journal, a new volume in my own life every six months to a year about who I'm now understanding him to be. Unless I've got him where I'd like him to stay, comfortably categorized. How do you know him now? Do you like or accept what you see? Our response when Jesus doesn't behave, there's a slide, I think. You can go to the next one. I want you to see this. Uh, There's a quote. Oh, no, no, you're good, you're good. (laughs) Um, When Jesus doesn't behave, he doesn't behave, their eyes are all fixed on him, but suddenly they feel his eyes fixing and going through them. He saw through their hearts. Their hearts were closed off to him. This is to the church at Laodicea. This is one example where even this moment, right now, the Lord, but very, this is not a threat, okay? The Lord, who is gracious, who is gentle and humble in heart, he's not looking at you going, tsk, tsk, tsk. He's not rolling his eyes that you'll never get your act together. But he loves you enough. He loves me enough to say, there's probably a nerve that I'm trying to touch right now. This was the nerve for the church at Laodicea. I use this one because of the whole, I come to proclaim good news to the poor. Because these folks thought, we're rich. We're good. We got life together. We are buttoned up. Life is working. And Jesus says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Think back. Amazement or rage. Next slide. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Keep going. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. These are things they were whether they verbalized them or not, that's how they were operating. Life's good, I got it. He says, you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Again, let me tell you the good news. When he's telling telling them and us that, I'm letting you know you're poor and blind and naked. Guess, Guess who he said from Isaiah 61, his heart is ignited to go after the poor, the blind, the naked. Now there's a self-induced, so he's still offering mercy right now in very hard truth. I advise you to buy from me gold and uh, refined by fire. Why? So that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love 
I reprove and discipline. If you're feeling any nerve touch this morning, if you're feeling any like, he loves you. He loves you. I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You might hear some knocks over there too. If anyone hears my voice, if you're hearing his voice right now, open the door. He will come in to you and will dine with you and you with him. That's an invitation to intimacy, but you need to understand this very good principle. There is no intimacy without truth. Many of us, the loneliness we feel in life, the disconnectedness we feel from God is because we'd like this truth about who Jesus is And we like to live this way and say this truth about ourselves, but live a different way. There is no intimacy without truth. You can only be loved when you're actually known as to who you really are. And the one who knows you best says, I'm not afraid of your sin, your failure, and I'm coming to you. I'm knocking. Let me in. But if we're going to have intimacy, we've got to start with where we really are. Next slide. I want you to hear this because he's, all eyes were fixed on him. I just talked about his eyes fixed on us. I want you to hear this from Jared Wilson. I shared this when I did a gospels class with some of you who were in it. Because again, I don't want you to hear a message today like, that's right, you're all wrong. You need to get your act together. Love this quote. The essence of the Christian message is not behave. It is behold. The Gospels were not written saying, you better get your life together. No. Behold, they're, they're holding Jesus up as he is, as he revealed himself to be. I'm the one who came even this day, not me, Jesus, to release you from that hidden sin and the gloss you're trying to put on your life to keep that sin hidden. I'm the one who came to release you from having to please every person around you and you're just killing yourself. I'm here to release you from the lie that you need to build your own brand and identity. You cannot do that. Our identity is in Jesus Christ if we have trusted him. And boy, is there sure footing in that. And there is no sure footing in anyone or anything else. He's not pointing a finger at you right now. He's saying, just look at me and receive me. Open the door, believer, and let's rekindle. Behold him. Two ways we can fix our eyes on him in closing. Keep going. In Revelation 1, then I turned. This is a response. What is our response? This one is of worship and humility. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. They can look right through our pretense. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
This is John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's a response of seeing him as he is, of humility and worship. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. He didn't say, that's right, you should have gotten on your knees earlier. He says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And then one more from Hebrews 12. When our eyes are fixed on him, gives us firm footing. It also, he also gives us the strength to endure in the race he set before you. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down to teach because that's what you do when you're in authority. You only sit at the right hand when you have done a task that God says yes. That's why he could ascend and sit to the right hand as the rightful ruler. And he says, for consider him, look at him as he really is. Consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you and I will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what I pray for us as a church, that we would be courageous enough to look at him again. Like the old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful place. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. They'll have less hold on you and me in the light of his glory and grace. Would you bow your heads? Worship team, would you come? We're going to finish in a song. Then Mike's going to um, introduce us to new members and we will be dismissed. Lord, I thank you for how gracious and gentle I have experienced you to be in my own life. When I've known that I've had one foot in and one foot out, when I've known that I've lived a double life, when I've also known times where I've, I'm sort of on track and yet know that I'm also living for myself at times, I just thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth that you see us with those eyes of fire, but also eyes that move you to compassion in your guts. And then you move toward us, not away from us. You don't recoil at our sin. You do call out our indifference, our lukewarmness, but you call us back to yourself. And I pray that you do a work over this fall season in the hearts of our folks here and in my own heart to simply first turn our eyes back to you. And we'd have the courage to put down our categories or to acknowledge when we're triggered with rage, bring the real us before the real you and then find release because you are the one who can release us from whatever it is that has a hold of our hearts and turn our hearts back to you as we turn our eyes to you. As we do that in this song, as we conclude this service, we pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen.